0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. I'm Lisa Stone, and you're listening to Parenting Aces. To season twelve of the Parenting Aces podcast, a proud member of the Tennis Channel podcast network, I'm your host Lisa Stone, and this week I have the pleasure of speaking with Amy Bryant, former head women's tennis coach at Emory University, a Division three school that was at the top of the rankings every year under Amy's leadership, and I'm sure will continue to be at the top of the rankings under new leadership, but. Amy has now transitioned away from college coaching and is now working with junior athletes in all sports to help them through the college recruiting process. So she is going to share some amazing insights, tips, advice, experiences that she's had with all of you as we learn more about what recruiting looks like from the coach's side. We learn about some of the pitfalls that student-athletes face when going through the recruiting process and how to really gauge whether or not a school is the right fit for your specific child so i'm excited for y'all to hear this conversation but before i bring amy on just a quick reminder if you haven't already we would love to for you to become a premium member or a free member of parenting aces by going to parentingaces.com and clicking on the join button it will give you full access to all of our articles podcasts um, discounts events and we'd love for you to do that Also, be sure and check the show notes for this and every episode of the Parenting Aces podcast for direct links to important information that was shared in the podcast, discount codes, etc. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Amy Bryant.
1: Welcome to the podcast, Amy
0: Bryant. I had to move all the way across the country to get a fellow Atlantan on the podcast. Who knew? <laughs> Thanks, Lisa. It's good to be here today. Yeah, I'm really excited to dig into your experiences as the head women's coach at Emory to talk about Division three tennis specifically and recruiting for Division three, and then also to talk about what you're doing now. But we'll save that part for the end. And to start, can you just give our audience a little bit of your story, how you got started playing tennis and what your journey
1: entailed? Sure. Um, Well, I started playing tennis, I mean... A long time ago when I was maybe, you know, five or six years old, my parents put a racket in my hand. Um, But then my path was very similar to today's, you know, junior tennis players in that I played tournaments on the weekends. I trained, you know, with a group. I had um, a coach that, you know, was looking out for me. So very similar path. Um, my path led me to Emory to play tennis at Emory. Um, and from there, I, um, you know, it's, it's funny because I didn't go to Emory thinking that I would create, have a career in tennis, but, um, I graduated from Emory from the business school, wound up working for a year in um, corporate America and realized that I needed to be back on the tennis court pretty quickly. So um, I started coaching when I was pretty young. I I came to Emory as an assistant coach when I was 24. Wow. And just a turn of events led me to get the head coaching position shortly thereafter. Timing is everything sometimes. So um, I was there at the right time, right place. And um, I, I had, I was there for 23 years and I just retired this past fall. Um, so we had, we had uh, quite a run there for um, the team and it was a great experience for me. And um, yeah, I love Emory. I love the team. Love everything we did there. How many national championships did y'all win? <laughs> We won, including the national championship. I won as a player my senior year. We Emory has won eight women's tennis national titles. So that's amazing. Yeah, plus some individual ones thrown in there for singles and doubles because we've had quite a few talented players come through and win the whole thing on the individual side.
0: For those who follow Division Three tennis, Emory is always the team to beat, and you guys have always set the bar really high. Um, not only from a tennis perspective, but from an academic perspective as well. Your student athletes always, you know, graduate with very high GPAs. Your team average GPA has always been very high. And and I think, you know, that's important to note for those families who want their children to put a focus on academics as well as on tennis when they go to college can you talk a little bit about what the Division Three experience is like from an academic side as well as from the tennis side and how it may differ from the other divisions in college tennis?
1: Sure. So I tend to stay away from labeling um, tennis programs by their division. Um, So I would say that um, Emory and and just like other schools are very unique in the expectations that um, they all entail in terms of their academic um, expectations, in terms of their athletic commitment, Um, So they're all very unique and not necessarily division specific. So it's really hard actually to kind of um, place them all in a, in a certain bucket. And I think that's really important for families to understand because there's about 450 schools in division three and the level of expectation on these student athletes is very different from the top of division three, all the way down to, you know, school 450. So um, when you are looking at a school where academics is rigorous, um, regardless of division. um, I think it's really important to understand the level of commitment that's expected of you on that tennis team. For example, how much will, what is the team training schedule looking like? Um, How much time are you going to be putting into the weight room? How much time are you going to be putting on conditioning off the court? Um, And all of that, in addition to, what you're majoring in, what you're studying in. And if you are at a competitive program, no matter what division it is, the academic athletic balance is going to be something that needs to be managed and needs to be safeguarded. Um, And again, regardless of division, I think that is the same across the board. board.
0: That's a really important statement that you just made because you know there's this kind of mindset out there that college tennis is a hierarchy with division 1 being the best and junior college being at the bottom and what you're saying now is the complete opposite of that that within each division of college tennis there may be a hierarchy but division 1 isn't necessarily better than division 2 isn't necessarily better
1: than division three, yada, 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 right? Exactly. In fact, schools that have or colleges and universities that have chosen to be in one division over another haven't chosen, I mean, they have literally made that choice as an institutional initiative to be in a particular division because of the philosophy of the division, not because they necessarily wanted to be number two to number one, or number three to number two, you know what I mean? They've chosen it because they believed in the mission and the philosophy of division three, or division two, or in in the case of um, junior college, or even NAIA schools as well. I mean, um, you know, there there is some good uh, fundamental rationale for schools being junior and community colleges in terms of what those um, colleges offer to the student athlete academically as well as athletically. So I think it's really important to understand what each institution stands for um, if you are really um, going to be deciding on which, school is right for you and that school could be in any of those divisions and i would further say and just to kind of piggyback on what you were saying i have seen through my years of coaching division 3 teams beat division 1 teams our team has done it i've seen division 2 teams beat division 1 teams i've seen division 2 players beat division 1 players i mean with tennis being such a individual sport as well i mean it's it's not hard to find a really strong player in in a quote unquote lower division that is actually better than the divisions, you know, above them. And and that in JUCO being placed at the bottom in some people's minds, I think is completely wrong because um there are so many fantastic tennis players in um junior college, community college settings. It's it's unbelievable to me. And then after two years of getting their feet wet and competing and at, at in the NJCAA, then they get to you know go in the transfer portal and potentially move on to um, even stronger programs. So
0: right. I think
1: that you know each school offers its its own benefits and values to the student athlete regard regardless of division. Yeah,
0: and and I agree with that a hundred percent. And you know one of the challenges that I've faced as someone who works with families and, you know, tries to help parents kind of navigate through all this is getting the junior tennis coaches to understand the makeup of college tennis in a more cohesive way, instead of just saying, well, division one's the best and as a coach if i can market myself as having x number of kids gone you know going on to play division 1 tennis that sets me above my peers we need to change that mindset among junior junior coaches so that they're talking to parents talking to their junior players about college tennis more as a macro instead of a micro topic how do we do that
1: So that's a really good question. I mean, I think that looking at each individual player that these coaches work with and looking at them in a holistic view is what really could help them see, oh, okay, well, I'm working with this kid who happens to be excellent in his academics. He may or may not like coming to drills six times a week, or, you know, maybe he only plays one tournament a weekend. And, you know, each each individual student athlete has their um, characteristics that set them apart. And I think that if we can get these junior coaches to really start looking at these kids as individuals and thinking about how to place them holistically so that they're at the program that matches what their bandwidth is for training. They're at the program that challenges them in the academic realm that they want to be in. And they're at the program that, you know, meets all of the other preferences that, that a student athlete could have when they're looking at college. I call them the Goldilocks principles, um, you know, the size, the location, the, the um, you know, all of that good stuff, the weather. But if we can start get, getting junior coaches to recognize that there is so much more out there than just that label, then we'd start having a lot more junior tennis players go on to play college tennis. Hmm. And so I don't know, I don't and know finding the- their best fit, right? Absolutely. Instead of you know absolutely. hopping around, absolutely, or sitting on the bench and never getting to play, which yes. is you know that's that's the worst. We, you know there there are enough schools um, sponsoring tennis that all of our junior tennis players can find the the right place to go and play and study.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This whole, you know, idea of college tennis has kind of been turned upside down recently with introduction of world tennis number and and everybody's kind of freaking out over the ratings and the rankings and what are the coaches looking at and how do i make sure my kid gets noticed by coaches and what does my kid need to do to get noticed by coaches you know my kid's a junior and not a single coach has offered them a full ride yet and you know what's wrong with my kid and what are we doing wrong here Can we just kind of jump into the recruiting process and what families need to understand about the coach's side of this, the college coach's side, what they're thinking, what they're tasked with, and where the responsibilities kind of are broken down between the player, the junior coach, the parents, and the college coach? I know that's a lot. (laughs)
1: Yeah, no, um that's a great question. Um I think that in college athletics recruiting in general, it is essential for the student athlete to advocate for themselves. And what I mean by that is if if our tennis players are sitting at home waiting for a coach to call, then they are likely not going to be playing tennis in college because that's just not the way that it works. So what we need our junior tennis players to be doing is when they are on the road at a tournament that they are visiting the schools that are near that tournament, just at least to get their eyes on the school. And if they're there, then why not shoot a message to the coach and say, coach, I'm I'm in town. I'm going to be visiting the school on this day. Do you have 15 minutes to meet with me? And start getting your name in front of coaches. Emails do not cost anything. Cost zero let, me, let me interrupt
0: one second yeah. the, the, because the pushback that I hear when I tell people that same exact thing is, well, you know, I, the recruiting rules don't allow my kid to, to contact a coach. Let's clarify the fact that the recruiting rules apply to the coaches. They don't apply to the student athletes. A student athlete can reach out to a coach anytime, anywhere, anyhow.
1: Correct. And, um, the student athlete's junior coach can reach out to a coach anytime, any place, anywhere, and can have a conversation with the college coach. Yes. So um, there are many ways around that. And the other thing I want to point out is that the only two divisions that limit the timing of when a coach can actively recruit you are division one and division two, II. division three does not, Yeah. they can start communicating with athletes as early as freshman year. Many of them don't because it's early. But they can. So um, when you send an email to a coach in high school at any time, even if it's before that, that recruiting date that division one and division two are allowed to contact you, coaches can still respond and say, thanks for your email. Here's some general information about our program. And what that does is that puts the student athlete on the radar, gets the name in the back of the, of the coach's mind, or at least gets the student athlete in their database. So they'll start receiving updates about the team and, and potential opportunities to play in front of the coach. Right.
0: And when you are, you know, planning these out of town tournaments or even local tournaments, you need to reach out to the coaches and say, hey, coach, I'm I'm playing this tournament on this date. You know, I'll send you an update when I have my match time and
1: then follow through with that. Don't send the empty email (laughs) and not follow through. That's a great point. So I, when I work with my student athletes, I call these three to six week touch points. And I have my student athlete, um, my student athletes, um, email or text, or sometimes even call coaches every three to six weeks, depending on where they are in this, in the recruiting process. So sophomores probably every six weeks, juniors every three weeks. But so once you made initial contact with a coach, I want them sending those touch points every three to six weeks. And those touch points could include things like here's the tournament I'm playing at could also, include, could also include, Hey, I just played a great match, uh, against a 11 UTR and here was the score and here are some clips from it. And, um, or it could include something like I just got my ACT score back and here it is. And I just wanted to share. So, um, and, and then obviously like what you said, here's my tournament schedule. If you can make it, I'll be in your area at this time. So, any kind of touch points are important. And those are the types of things that keep a student athlete on a coach's radar, which is what coaches need. Because I'll be frank, I mean, I was a coach for 23 years. We can't keep track of everything. There were days when I would have 100, 150 emails from recruits every day, you know, depending on the day. And it's impossible to keep track. But those kids that were persistent, And advocating for themselves are the ones that um, really made an impact on me and were a little bit easier for me to continue the recruiting process with because they were already in my mind. Right.
0: And understanding that college coaches aren't operating under unlimited budgets. You know, they appreciate having an opportunity to see a recruit they're interested in at home where it doesn't cost anything for them to travel to that tournament. We're seeing fewer and fewer college coaches showing up at junior tournaments, you know, the big national tournaments. They used to be teaming with college coaches from every division. Now we're seeing fewer and fewer as budgets are being cut. And so, you're actually doing the coach a favor when you alert them to an opportunity to see you play
1: where they don't have to pay to travel. Well, and I would take that even a step further, Lisa. And I would say that if there's going to be live streaming on your court and you know that ahead of time that you send the coach, the link because of exactly what you said, budgets are tight. And if you can send the coach, you know, an actual unedited video, that's, uh, you know, unedited, video of of something that's happening live, you know, that makes it so easy. The coach can just sit down and watch. But I mean, even if you can't send a live stream, if you're getting video footage of you competing, that unedited footage is huge. It's the same thing as if they were there watching you in person, virtually. Right, exactly,
0: exactly. So I want to kind of jump back to this whole idea of trying to figure out the right fit for a junior player when it comes to choosing not just a college tennis program, but a college program in general, from the academic side, the social side, everything. There are, you know, so many schools out there and with the internet Now you can do virtual school, uh, excuse me, virtual tours of colleges, you know, from the comfort of your home. But I will say nothing takes the place of an actual visit to a campus, but it doesn't mean you have to visit every single school that you're interested in. And one of the things that, that I tell parents is, you know, visit a Big like rah-rah school. Visit a small intimate school, maybe a liberal arts school, visit an urban campus, visit a rural campus, visit a college town campus, you know, visit um if military is in your future, visit one of the academies, if if a single gender school is something you prefer, visit one of those. So you don't have to visit every single one, but I think I mean, how important is it in your mind, Amy, for these kids to kind of narrow down some of the more overarching features of a school so that they can then kind of hone in on the specifics that are going to be the right fit for them?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good approach to take. Um, and I think you know, back to what I said before, is if your family's taking a trip or you're playing a junior tournament somewhere, just go see whatever school is there. It doesn't matter if it's a school that you would never go to in a million years. What matters is that you're seeing a certain type of school, whether it's a big school, uh, big you know, to satisfy your big school sports curiosities, or whether it's a smaller school to satisfy your craving to be kind of away from it all. So. Um, Just getting an idea of what that really looks like, um, being able to um, just sense it and instead of just hearing about it, I think can really make a difference. And then that what that does is that helps to narrow down your list of schools that you're going to um, start your outreach with with coaches. So that's helpful because, again, there's so many college programs out there. So. Um, If we can start the list and we can target the schools smartly at the beginning, then um, we can have a much higher rate of success when we go through the um, correspondence phase of things.
0: Sure. So can you talk a little bit about, because you touched on junior colleges and the fact that junior and community colleges are two-year programs, and then the players go into the transfer portal and move on to a four-year school. I I always kind of joke about how intimate the coaching community is and how the college coaches all know one another and they all talk. And and it's especially important for a kid that's starting at a junior community college to not burn bridges, right? Because the hope is you are going to transfer after that two years. But even kids that start out at a four-year college or university, there's no guarantee you're going to stay in one place for the whole four years. And the transfer rate we know is pretty high in tennis. So can you talk a little bit about how as a college coach yourself, you utilize networking among the other college coaches at all the divisions to kind of help you build the best team you could build?
1: Wow, that's a great question. And I think it's something that a lot of um, a lot of people actually overlook. And when I say people, I guess I mean coaches. And and when you're uh, you know, I'll give you some examples. I have I have had transfers come into the program and I've had transfers go out of the program this when I was coaching. And I always felt like the best coaches were the ones that would call me up and say, you know, so-and-so's in the transfer portal. or we're considering um adding so and so to the team. Um how, do, how was she on your team? What was her attitude like? How was her effort level? Um, you know, tell me about her in school. So if coaches would, would have called me to give a character reference on a kid, you know, that tells me that they're really concerned about shaping the culture of their program. Mm. And some coaches did this and others did not. I, I really believe that more coaches should, but to get to your point in terms of burning bridges the coaches that do that, they talk. And so, and, and I definitely did that. Any, any student athlete that came into my program, I I would call for reference. And not only would I call the, the former college coach, I would call the junior coach as well. And if they played high school sports, I would even call the high school coach. So, um, so I think, you know, that's, that's all telling there. You can't really escape anything. Yeah. Um, it's really important to um, to control your effort and attitude, no matter where you're playing, when you're playing, um, and and what you're doing. because word does get around especially in the tennis community. It's a small community. It is very small. Well, I want to segue Amy into
0: life post college coaching because you are now working with student athletes, not just in tennis, but in a variety of sports to help them kind of navigate through the recruiting process so that they can continue competing at the collegiate level. And um, I think it's so interesting when college coaches segue into a career guiding student athletes, you know, because you have so much knowledge and experience having coached and knowing what happens behind the scenes, and that's such a valuable asset to share with kids that are now looking to play at the collegiate level. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you see among prospective student-athletes who want to play their sport in college and you don't have to limit it to tennis or you can limit it to tennis, but I feel like we all can learn from each other and different sports. And um, so I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that.
1: So I think the biggest mistake that student athletes make um, includes um, having or setting unrealistic expectations for themselves. So you know, it's really easy to become enraptured by the ESPN college game day hype, um, you know, and think to yourself, that's where I'm going to go play in college. But realistically, we're talking about less than 1% of high school student athletes are even going to be televised (laughs) at any point in time in their college career. So, um, I think it's really, really important for them to set a balance list. And sure, we can have reach schools. There's there's nothing wrong with dreaming, but hope is not a strategy. So it's really important for the student athletes that I work with to have that balance list, a list of places where um where they can flourish academically, athletically personally you know all of those things um and when I say athletically places where they can play not places where they're you know maybe a walk- on um you know or where they're number nine on the on the tennis team and might not ever see a match you know I'm talking about places where they are really wanted by the coach they feel loved they they're they're going to um, really thrive in that environment so anyways that's the number one mistake it's just reaching a little too high Let's make sure that we balance things out. The number two mistake, I think, is to go into the process without a full understanding of what your family's budget is for college. Because huge in tennis, in tennis as we know, um, only women's tennis is a headcount sport, which means that it offers full rides for the entire rostered team. Um, men's tennis is not if if there is the budget for that if the if their school has the budget for it which not all teams are fully funded correct you so men's tennis is not all those coaches have to be like mathematicians they have to like you know divide and 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 give money out and and each year get more or less or what you know and it's so they're they're doing a lot of math mathematics up there, but Division Two they're all equivalency sports. Division Three there's no athletic um, scholarships at all. Although seventy percent of students do receive merit aid, so it's really important to look at places where um, in Division Three where a coach where the admissions office is going to recognize your academic merit. Um, so and that's you know a conversation for another time but NAIA and and JUCO as well. I mean, you're looking at footing some of the bill, no matter what. So it's really important to go into the process before you even start um, with a clear idea of what your family can afford. I can't even tell you how many times I've had players come, recruited players go through five, six months of recruiting with me, come for an official visit, love the campus of Emory, Um, because what's not to love, it's absolutely absolutely a beautiful campus, love it, and then realize they can't afford it. So, I mean, that's heartbreaking to see. Mm -hmm. So really, it's important to start that process early. And I'll tell you the number three mistake that I've seen out of student-athletes is we get through the whole process, we've found a place to go, You know, we've been recruited, everything is great, we're so excited. And then we do one of two things or both things. And that is we stop training hmm. or we stop working hard in school. Hmm. And if if either of those t- things happen, then your future position on a team or your future admission spot at that school where you were admitted is, is that jeopardy of being rescinded? So, um, so those are the the biggest mistakes that I've seen um, my student athletes make.
0: Well, I think those are three really good ones for people to hear and and really process what that means for their family. Because, yeah, um, I I've seen it as well, and it's awful when. You get through the process and and especially the whole financial piece of it, because not only is it heartbreaking for the student athlete and their family, but it's also heartbreaking for the coach at the school that has spent all of this time and resources and invested in this player only to find out, you know, months down the road that they're not going to be coming so um, and and the existing team members, you know, who may have formed relationships with this player. So, yeah, I think um, it's really important for families to hear what you're saying here and um, really give these things some thought and uh, make sure that that your child doesn't fall into those those bad habits or bad patterns or, you know, lack of consideration for these different aspects of what it means to play a collegiate sport. One thing you and I were talking about before we we went online here was work that you're doing with other college coaches and really helping them maximize their potential as coaches. And you know, over the years um, we know there have been some phenomenal coaches out there like you that you know, are constantly, consistently over the years getting positive reviews by their players, the parents feel good about sending their kids to to be under your wing for four years, etc. But then, sadly, there are also coaches out there that aren't doing such a great job and, you know, end up getting relieved of their duties for various reasons. And, um, you know, and and like in my son's case had, you know, he had a horrible experience his freshman year and the coach is no longer coaching tennis. And, you know, it's, it's a shame for the kids that kind of are subjected to that. So what do you think is the biggest missing piece from coach education for college coaches to be successful, not only in producing successful teams in terms of winning and losing, but producing successful teams in terms of graduating great humans to go out into the world and make a mark?
1: Um, I think the biggest missing piece is um, a focus on integrity actually. And I think that when I say that, I I don't mean to say that coaches don't act with integrity. I mean, that's not, there's not an either, or I think that all coaches can act with more integrity. And in order to do so, I think that the focus needs to shift. I think the focus of college coaches needs to shift from a winning at all costs mentality to a, um, to a focus on the process of developing student athletes to become whatever it is that they want to become. And with, the, with the foremost foundation of that being confident young adults. Mm-hmm. And so in order for them to have, to build that confidence, they've got to have the support system in place from the coach. And, um, And that just all stems back to that idea of how do we act with integrity as coaches. I think another missing thing, um, and this is not directly answering your question, but um, I think we need more female coaches. I really do. And I think it's um, upsetting that we don't have more. Um, We've certainly started to see in the news more female coaches coaching men's sports, which is long overdue, but, um, but there's still not enough. And there's just frankly, not enough women coaching women's sports. So Mm -hmm. we, I think that if we were to, um, balance that out a little bit, I think we would start seeing a shift in, um, the success of programs and the success of programs would be measured more by other things rather than them winning as well. So um, that's those are my two big thoughts on the coaching space.
0: <laughs> well, so to, to kind of build on that, in your opinion, what has to happen for more female players to go on to become female coaches at the collegiate level? And What's missing right now that we're not attracting more women into coaching roles? What's what's the roadblock?
1: Well, that's the million-dollar question. You know, how do we fix this problem? And I've been asked this a bunch, and I don't think there's one easy fix to this. I mean, first of all, coaching is tough. Like, it is, I I cannot describe, it is very difficult to have a family. It's very difficult to have a balanced life um because you're on the road so much because you're on 24/7 when you're in season when you're out of season you're 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 working regular hours i mean there's no catch up you can't play catch up there mm. so i think that there needs to be a deep dive into what the life of a college coach actually looks like um and how we could um, adjust it to be more beneficial for females to want to go into that space. I mean, the other thing is, I think that that um, pay needs to be increased um, at, uh, you know, the majority of schools. I mean, at the top, yeah, sure, the, the pay is great. But everywhere else, there's not. So there's not really equitable pay, considering the amount of hours that people are, putting in so it's it's hard to keep good people and I don't not that I'm saying that that women are good people and men aren't but I'm just saying that you know it's it's really hard for a woman to have a family have the equivalent of a part-time salary and and then be supporting her family where you know a lot of coaches have two jobs because they can't afford, and, and it's really hard for women to to do that if they have a family. So
0: how did you find that balance? Because as you said, you coach for 23 years and, and you do have a family. Um,
1: what was your secret sauce? Well, I don't know that I ever really found it. I mean, I think that if, if I, if I had found it, I might've coached for 40, 45 years. Right. Mm-hmm. So um but I will say this I mean, I had to do a lot of work on recognizing. My impact on the student athletes and where it needed to lie, instead of focusing so much on the, on the winning, like we talked before, I focused a lot on the process of improvement. So I found reward in what I was doing, um, in other ways, rather than just, you know, for, for, uh, let me explain. I'll start at the beginning. So for a while there, for me to have a successful year, to feel like I had a successful career going, I had to win. That was it. It was win or nothing. Yeah. Not a healthy mindset, right? So I had to kind of you know start over and, and recognize that there are other pieces to the process. And I think that if we did a lot more work with coaches and their focus, um that we could have coaches, especially female coaches, in positions for a lot longer. Um but again, you know, the mindset's got to change. And um, I think a lot of that stems from the top and from administration and, and making sure that um, their staff is, is taking care of themselves. Right. We're so focused as coaches on taking care of the students, we forget to take care of ourselves. So it's really important to, to take the time to do that. It's
0: interesting to hear you say that because... It's the same thing that happens with the student athletes themselves, right? When they start focusing too much on the winning as a gauge for whether or not they're successful in their development, then everything, you know, the bottom falls out, right? That's just not a sustainable, healthy way to approach anything, whether it's development as a junior athlete or whether it's as a career person or Whatever other role you are, you, you know, that you hold in life, you've got to find a way to gain perspective and to gain balance and to find success in ways that we haven't necessarily been raised to recognize as a way to judge success, right? We're yeah, which is
1: also which is also kind of counterintuitive to athletics because yeah. success is measured by winning and losing. So yeah, it's, it's certainly not going to be an easy shift nor nor one that I expect to see in my lifetime, but I think it's important um, if we do want to um, get more women in coaching and if we want to have the better coaches stay in coaching longer across the board, women, yeah. men. And women. Yeah. And it's funny. I, I hadn't intended to take
0: the conversation this way, but I think, it's a really good message, especially for the parents who do have daughters playing tennis to kind of hear this and look at coaching as a really great career path after playing in college or maybe not playing in college. Maybe you go to college and you become a team manager and you kind of get on the coaching path that way. But coaching at the collegiate level is can be, I won't say is, can be a really rewarding career path for these kids that aren't really sure what they want to do after college. And your story of playing in college, going into the business world and and being pulled back into the sport is such a common one. I mean, I've interviewed so many coaches that have followed that same trajectory of, you know, they were great junior athletes, great college athletes, then, you know, get their degree. they like, oh, I'm going to go, you know, make a killing out in the world and the tennis court just calls them back, calls them back, calls them back. So I love that. Um, all right. Let's, let's wind this down a bit. I want to give you an opportunity to kind of dive into specifically what you're doing now and how families can reach out to you.
1: Sure. Thank you. Um, so I have my business is Bryant college coaching. You can find it online, bryantcollegecoaching.com. Um, and you can reach me there, schedule a free 15 minute talk with me, whatever you want. I'm, I'm willing to chat with you about it, but I do work with all sports and all, um, athletes. I work with high school student athletes and their families to help them navigate the athletics recruiting process, which can be incredibly overwhelming as we know. Um, But um, my work with student athletes includes um, everything from the beginning, starting with a list, a nice broad list. Um, It starts with um, gathering information about what the student athletes really looking for, all of those um, preferences that we talked about before. And then we continue to the, um, outreach phase, uh, where we communicate with coaches and I help to translate what I call coach speak for my student athletes. Like, what is this coach really saying when they say, oh, you're on my list or yes, I'd like to see you play again. Or, you know, what does that really mean? Does that mean I'm a recruited athlete now? Or does that mean, you know, that I'm, that I need to show them something else. So, so all of that, I help with, um, And um, all the way through to um, prepping them for a phone call with the visit, prepping them for um, an official visit or even an unofficial visit. Um, And then, of course, um, weighing options as we continue on through the process, any offers and decisions that need to be made. I help with that as well. So, um, yeah, start to finish kind of. kind of service and um, the nice thing is and this is this is something that that's really unique I think to the work that I do as a um, student athlete recruiting advisor, student athletes can reach out to me anytime I I have I message them um so which is really helpful because the recruiting process doesn't happen between the hours of nine and five hmm. um, you know there's stuff that's happening at night there's stuff that's happening on the weekends and so if if they feel any anxiety at all they can always message me and I can help them to understand what's really going on and and provide some serenity to all of the noise that they're hearing but um so that's one phase of Bryant college coaching and then The other phase um, is the the coaching piece. I do do executive coaching. I'm a trained executive coach. And so I do um, help coaches um, and coach them through situations that they may be experiencing with their teams, with their administration, with their professional development, whatever that may be. I love that. We will have links to your website um, in the show
0: notes on parentingaces.com. So I encourage all of the families watching or listening to be sure to click on that and explore further what Amy is offering. She has so much experience from the coaching side. She is also, you know, a former athlete herself. She has she's a parent now. So she's got that experience. And um I, I just think, you know, it's so awesome to see you kind of in this realm now, Amy, and bringing all that experience that you've gathered from your years at Emory and even before then to families that are trying to make this very tough decision about what's the right fit for my kid? What should I be spending? What should our expectations be? And, and all of that. So thank you for, for doing that. I'm really excited to kind of follow your coach coaching piece um, as that develops further, because um, I think there's a lot of room for improvement. Certainly there's some great coaches out there, but there's some other coaches that could be better than they are. And, and, you know, who better to help guide them than somebody who's been there, done that. So um, I'm super excited about that. But thank you for taking time out of your crazy busy life to chat with us at Parenting Aces. And I hope you'll come back and we'll kind of dig deeper into some of the the things that we just kind of scratched the surface on today. I would love it. Thanks. It was really fun. Thank you. To my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you have heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey,